We're in Hebrews chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. So in the past two weeks, we have dealt with some heavy teaching in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The sermons have gone exceptionally long, and I apologize for that. There's been some difficult questions that we've had to answer in connection with each of those texts. And if we were to summarize the point of the author in verses 1 through 4... It would be in two claims. Here are the two claims of verses 1 through 4. First, we must pay much closer attention or hold fast to what we have heard, lest we drift away to utter loss. The second claim, we must not neglect this great salvation or we will not escape. And it's implied that he's talking about escaping the wrath of God. So these are massive claims with huge implications with a ton of questions, and if you have questions surrounding those claims, you can go back and listen to the sermons or come talk to me afterwards. It's very important that we have those settled in our heart before we move forward. So we come to this passage, and again, the point of verses 1 through 8, which is what we'll be dealing with primarily today, I'm sorry, 5 through 8, is that it shows the superiority of the messenger of this new covenant. The contrast is that the old covenant was ministered to us or revealed to us in some way through the ministry of angels. This new covenant that we have is given to us or ministered to us through the Son of God Himself. And that serves to show the superiority of the new message versus the old message. It's not that the old message was wrong or bad in any way. It's just that what we have now in Christ is that much more glorious, that much more serious and spectacular. So let's get into it. This is what the author says in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And you might be sitting in your chair looking at this text, listening to me speak and saying, angels again? You better not. I'm talking about angels for 
several weeks, and it can seem odd because angels don't play a big part in our thinking, in our spiritual walk mostly. And if, if they do for you, that, that's kind of the exception, especially if you're raised around Baptist circles. But it's been mentioned seven times. Angels have been mentioned seven times up to this point in the book, an entirety of 11 or 12 times in the book. Only Matthew and the Revelation to John mention angels more times in the New Testament, and they're much longer books. So if you're sitting there asking why, why we've been talking about it, why has it been coming up, it's because that's what the text is doing. That's what the author has for us. And if we look at the text, if we come to the Word of God and we say, well, this was for that time, people do that. They look at a text of Scripture, a command of Scripture, and say, well, that's not necessarily for us. That doesn't apply to us anymore today. And we can kind of sequester sections of the Scripture and think, well, that doesn't really apply to us. We don't really have to deal with that. I don't think that's honoring the text. And we miss the point of what he's trying to say to us. I don't want to just gloss over what he's saying. As I've said earlier, the greatness of what you have to say is told or is communicated by who you're sending the message through. Right? This is something that we can all understand. If you send an email or a text, that communicates a certain degree of importance. If you sit down and you buy a quill and ink, and you get parchment and you write out by hand in cursive a message to someone, put it in the mail, use the ink and or the uh, the wax seal and you get a special seal and you send that in the mail through first class in like a nice UPS container that communicates a different degree of importance and if you fly across the world and come to someone knock on their door and say I have a message for you that communicates an even higher degree of importance and if you send the son of God to speak a message That is the ultimate importance. And that's the author's point. Why he's bringing up angels. The old covenant was communicated through these heavenly beings and they are glorious. If we had the ability to send an angel to communicate a message to someone, that would communicate a high degree of importance. But when the Son of God shows up and tells us something, there is nothing higher. There's no higher importance. And the point of this passage is to communicate that Jesus is the Lord of the world to come. Also, that the end of redemption or the point of redemption, the point of the gospel in bringing us to God is Christ-centered. It's not only a rescue mission. It's not only bringing us out of decay and death to life. That There there is something Christ-centered about it. It all focuses on Him in some way. So, let's look at this terminology. And I'll just tell you up front that this is terminology and a way of thinking that we're not used to. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. We don't usually engage in talking about subjugation of an entire world We don't talk usually about a world to come and that world being subjected to someone. But this is biblical terminology and it helps us understand what God is doing or has done already in Christ. 
helps us make sense of the entire Bible from start to finish. The Bible speaks of two movements, if you will, two sections, two times of subjection. The first one, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verses, one, uh, verses 18 through 22, where he says that God himself subjected the world to futility, to decay, it says later on in the text. God, because of sin, because of what happened in the rebellion of mankind, subjected the world to futility. That's the first movement or instance of subjection of the entire world. So I don't like the phrase, and if you use it, I'm not upset at you. I use it sometimes and have to catch myself. Fallen world. That's not right. That's what the, even the ESV Bible says in its heading, the fall. It's not a term the Bible uses. It's the curse because of sin. God subjected the world to futility because of sin. It's not passive. It's not just like we fell from grace and it's very poetic and pretty. It's a curse. Sin is personal. Sin causes this. It's broken. It's been subjected or put under the heavy hand of futility. So that's the first movement. In, in, in this passage that we see, we have a different kind of subjection. It's a completely different type, and it's, it's in a way unrelated to that first movement of subjection. Because if you think, well, God subjected the world to futility, so what we're hoping for is that God would unsubject the world to futility or released from its bondage to decay, as even Paul says. But this gives us a different flavor of what's going on in the second movement of subjugation. It's not just like he submits the world to come to a principle like life or peace, happiness, joy. It's been subjected to a person. And he says the world to come has been subjected to a person. We'll talk about what he means by the world to come here in a second. What the author shows us here is a Christ-centered worldview. This is different from a merely biblical or Christian worldview. This isn't Christendom. This isn't just living your life according to the rules in the Bible. There is something uniquely different about a Christ-centered worldview. What the text is saying is that the world to come, whatever he means by that, which we'll get to in a second, has been subjected to Christ, a singular person. The idea here is that what God is doing in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, was more than just to redeem mankind and fix everything. It was to establish Jesus as the ruler of the new creation. And you can hear it in songs, and this is why maybe I'm being overly sensitive or overly uh, persnickety with words and songs and what you hear on the radio. There's this one song where it says, I want to be in Eden. Or I want to go back to how it was in Eden. Friends, Zion outstrips Eden in every single way. 
And Christ being made Lord of the world to come is greater and more beautiful than anything we witnessed in Genesis 1. So it's to establish Jesus as the ruler of the new creation. A ruler? The term the Bible uses to describe this is Jesus as king. What we see in the revelation to John is that Jesus is called king of kings and lord of lords. And when he returns, it will not be in meekness and weakness and disregard. He will show up in power and glory as the king of all things. King or sovereign or ruler isn't something that we're used to as Americans. Our most powerful executive has a limited stay, the maximum of eight years. And if we don't like people who rule over us, we can vote them out of office. The last king over our nation, back when we were the colonies, didn't fare so well. Started a war and got rid of him. So for a long time, our mental structure hasn't functioned understanding what it means to be under a king. We have to hearken back to maybe the fairy tales that we were told as children or the stories that we read to our kids at night to understand what does it mean? What does it feel like? What does what does it look like to be under a king? What does that culture even feel like? So here's the question. Since it is the case that this world is subjected to futility and the world to come is subjected to Christ, is he talking about two separate worlds or two separate times? This is what the author says. He says, the world to come of which we have been speaking. So you have to look back to what he said already to give clues to what is what is this world to come that we've been talking about? And there are other clues, but the most likely clue to what he's meaning when he says the world to come is in verse 1. He says, in these last days. Long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So is he talking about the world we are in now or the world to come, the hereafter? And the answer, biblically, is yes. Exactly. These last days are the beginning point of the world to come. This is the idea that the theologians call the already not yet dynamic of the kingdom of God. In a way, the future is invading the present through the gospel. The kingdom of God is already happening. This is how Jesus speaks about it. An hour is coming and is already here. When the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. You see this multiple times through especially the gospel of John. So how does this make sense? And I, I, I struggled to find an example that would be easy and quick to explain this. Um, biblically, you can go back to David. And everyone in this room should understand this story. When Samuel, the prophet, comes to David and anoints him king. It was a long time between that moment and when he was coronated. Because Saul was still king. So was David God's anointed? Yes. Was Saul still king? Yes. So there's a beginning point where God has already shown that he's shifting the plan to David. That he's not going to 
have Jonathan rule in Saul's place, that he's, he's changing the line completely, but it took years, decades, before David became king in the eyes of all of Israel. Another example, this is kind of agrarian. It's, it's very basic, but if you know anything about growing fruit or trees or different types of crops, you know that as one crop is dying, you can usually go out and put down seed for a type of grass or a type of crop that grows in the time where the first crop is dying off. So as the first crop is dying off, the other seed is already germinating and already beginning to take on nutrients and spring forth new life. So that overlap is the time that we're living in right now. The age to come has already begun, but it's not yet here fully. Now the author makes his case biblically. He says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, but it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Just as an aside, he says, testified somewhere. It should be an encouragement to you if it's difficult to memorize Scripture and to know exactly where everything is. Even an author of the Bible says, it's been testified somewhere. So what's more important is that you know the Bible and know how to use it, not necessarily chapter and verse, okay? Just take that as an encouragement. It has been testified somewhere. This is Psalm 8. What's interesting about the text itself, if you go back to Psalm 8, there's no indication whatsoever that David is speaking about the Messiah. There are other psalms where it's very evident, like Psalm 110. We've already mentioned that one in our study of Hebrews. But in Psalm 8, there's no indication of that, at least explicitly. David's primarily reflecting on the creation of man in the Genesis account. He's primarily looking at how God created man on the sixth day as the crowning achievement of his creation, and he appoints man over all of creation, essentially as his steward. He says, you've submitted or subjected everything to him. So how can the author of Hebrews take a passage that's speaking about God's creation in Genesis 1 and then take that and apply it to Jesus? as proof for what he's already said. And this is where it's important to remember that even though there were roughly 40 different human authors of the biblical text, spanning about 2,000 years, written in three languages across three different continents, that it ultimately has one author, the Holy Spirit himself. And there is unity, there is consistency, we just need to find it. What it might be is this motif of son of man. Because in the original text, Psalm 8, says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man? Daniel picks this up or builds on this in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and says that he saw one as of a son of man who came and was given ultimate authority and dominion over all the nations and will rule them with a rod of iron. So that might be what the author of Hebrews is picking up here. But if that's what he's doing, you'd think that he would just quote Daniel 7. If it's explicit that 
this Son of Man, which Jesus loved that title. He referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title. Basically saying, I'm that one that Daniel spoke of. If the author was just making that Son of Man connection, he probably just would have used Daniel 7. So why is he using Psalm 8? Yes, these are the type of questions that you should be asking of your Bible. And as Martin Luther said, the original Martin Luther, beat it into submission until it yields its meaning to you. Part of the author's point, or to supply the why behind why he's using this text to apply to Jesus, is that in Daniel it's very abrupt, right? He's seeing these visions, he's receiving prophecy from the Lord, and he just sees one like a son of man who's given ultimate authority and power and dominion. And there's no why, there's no long description of why the son of man who appears out of nowhere is given this dominion. So in quoting Psalm 8 and connecting us back to the Genesis account of the creation of the world, we have something tying us into a very important theological idea and that Jesus is the second Adam. So if you think about what happened with our first father, who was given authority, given the responsibility to rule over creation, what happened? Very sure, yeah, sin. And what should have been the man leading his wife in spiritual maturity and both of them ruling over creation, you see a complete inversion of that where the serpent comes, deceives the wife, and the wife leads his hus- her husband into sin. So our first father failed and failed miserably in his role to be the ruler over God's creation. And you and I fall right into that long trend of failure. That's what sin is. It's a way to think about sin, is that God gave us a role, a responsibility to rule and glorify Him in His image over all creation, and we just don't do it. Every one of us. So this psalm is ultimately about Jesus because Jesus comes to be the second Adam. And you can read about this in Romans 5. We don't have time to go there today, but just read Romans 5. Paul picks up on this idea very keenly. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the second Adam, and he comes in the flesh as a human so that he can be our new Head, our new first father. You got to see the the similarities to the life of Jesus and the greater Adam. Because Jesus did what Adam failed to do, he has the right to be the second Adam. If you remember the story, everyone in this room should remember the story of the serpent coming to Adam and Eve and deceiving them. Then you skip forward several thousand years and you see Jesus going out into the wilderness, not a perfect garden where everything is perfect for him. He goes into the wilderness, no food, no water for long periods of times, 40 days, and the enemy comes and tempts him. And instead of falling to the deception of the serpent, he maintains his integrity and does not sin. God is forecasting in a way when you, when you read Genesis because of how Adam failed and how we know Jesus succeeded. He, God is forecasting what his plan is ultimately in Jesus. There will be one who comes and rules the very image of God himself. 
who does what Adam could not. Another difference between Psalm 8 and how the author uses it here. The author says, For a little while he was made lower than the angels. This is speaking about Jesus' incarnation, that his glory was not even on the level of the angels. In the Psalms, he's talking about order of glory. That mankind is less in glory than the angels. Here, the author is talking about for a little time. And just as an encouragement to you, and as we think about Jesus being our king, he's not this weak, rejected stone anymore that people can disregard. As a Christian, you have a great and powerful king who has no rival. He was only for a little while made lower than the angels. Now he rules from heaven at the right hand of the Almighty. So Jesus came and he did what seemed impossible. He lived the perfect life that Adam, our first father, was supposed to live. He came and he was tempted by the serpent and he remained true. He did what seemed impossible. And I thought long and hard about stories and ideas that I could use to explain what this is like. And the best one I came up without you all thinking I'm really big nerd by using some examples is the sword Excalibur. In the story, there's many versions of the story, but what you have is there's this sword in the stone and only those who are worthy to take the sword could rule over Britain. And it sits there long, perhaps rusty, in this fairy tale. And finally, a young boy who no one regarded comes and takes the sword out of the stone. Jesus came into a situation where no one had hope. No one understood what would be necessary to live the perfect life before God. They tried and they tried. They tried to keep the law and Israel failed over and over and over and over and over. And Jesus comes and just does it. Perfectly. This is echoed, and I want to read this to you because of how moving it is. You don't necessarily have to turn there. This is Revelation 5, 1 through 5. The same theme of seeing something that seems impossible, seeing something that seems hopeless, and Jesus comes and does it. This is what John says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus has conquered, so he is worthy to be the second Adam, to rule over the world to come. Second half or middle portion of verse 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
This verse is very clear, and there is little debate about what he's saying. But the implications are very far-reaching. He left nothing outside his control. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We don't like the idea of authority and control. We usually, when people want control or have control, we're usually suspicious of them. We're usually anti-establishment. Power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts ultimately. But Jesus, because He has overcome, because according to John, He has conquered, He has the right to all authority. And it is right that nothing should be left out from under His control. Nothing? Nothing at all. And it's hard to accept that. I'll just be honest with you, that is difficult to accept. Because when you look at the world, it doesn't seem like it. And the text even confesses that. At this time, we don't see everything under His control. We'll have to get to that next week. But just know, the text deals with that. When you look at the world and we see the things that go on, it doesn't look like everything's under Jesus' control. So we'll have to supply the answer next week. Before we move to the application here, to the adults in the room, do you think of your life and the freedom and the plans that you have in this way that everything is put under Jesus' control? Does your life reflect Jesus being in charge? To the parents in the room, do you lead your children, your family? Do you treat your spouse in a way that shows that Jesus is in charge and not you? To the children in the room, do you see your belongings, how you interact with your brothers and sisters, the way you submit to your parents in a way that reflects that Jesus is in charge of everything? This is the ultimate end of the conversations that I have with Zoe very often. You know, they get in that that, uh, repetitive question of why. Why should I clean my room? Why should I obey you? Why, Why did God tell us to obey our parents? And the ultimate answer to those questions to that long cascade of questions is because Jesus is in charge. He's in charge of everything. The big idea of this text is that Jesus is king. Nothing, absolutely nothing was left outside his control. Heaven is wonderful precisely because Jesus is reigning there. And the new earth will be so wonderful precisely because Jesus' rule will be fully realized. So next week, the author answers the objection that we've already talked about. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So we'll have to unpack that. For now, we can let the argument sit and we can meditate on the beauty of that singular idea that Jesus is the king of the world to come. And that world begins now and today in your heart and mine as we seek to be more like him. And it even explains what we see in the world that doesn't look like it's under his control. Because there are still hearts, there are still minds that are not subjected to him. So just a few points of application. The first should be, obviously, to submit to King Jesus. If he is really king, 
If he is really in charge, he's been appointed over the world to come, and that world is invading the present as we speak, then submit to him. This is not an overly emotional religion we have. It's very real. There is a king of the universe, and he requires, he demands fealty and submission and obedience. If you're not submitted to him, if you're not obeying King Jesus, you must. That is what repentance means, that he is in fact your king. He left nothing outside of his control. That includes you and me. And regardless of where your heart is, he's still your king. You just may be in rebellion to him. And things will not go well for you on judgment day if you are in rebellion to King Jesus when he returns. The life of Jesus, and this isn't just an arbitrary kingship. He's not just up there ruling in heaven, demanding our allegiance and our fealty. His life is the ultimate defeater for every reason you could put forward as a reason not to obey and submit to him. How can I trust him? Look at his resurrection. He proved that every word he said was true by conquering death. How can I love a God who would let these terrible things happen, who rules from heaven and I don't feel loved by him and things seem dark? He willingly endured the brutality of death and the wrath of God for you. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and he took on the curse more darkness and pain and sorrow than any of us have ever felt. How can he love me in my sin and shame? Look at his life and look how he interacted with the sinners who were drawn to him. He was meek and kind and invited them to repent. How can I feel secure with him as my sovereign king? We can trust that his motives are good and loving because of his willingness to come and live his life lower than the angels in humiliation. He comes to Jerusalem, what should be the crowning moment of his arrival to the holy city on a donkey. This is something you have to own to the children in the room. Being born into a Christian home does not mean that you've been born into the kingdom. Just because your mom and dad love Jesus, that doesn't mean that you do. You have to make this your own. And it is an everyday decision. Am I going to live my life today in a way that really shows that Jesus is king? Or am I just going to do my own thing? Am I going to make life hard for mom and dad? Am I just going to be selfish with my brothers and sisters? To the young people in the room, as you decide the most important things in your life, what you're going to do, where you're going to go to school, potentially who you marry, how does the kingship of Jesus factor in to your life? Or does it at all? To the adults in the room, don't rest on the ambiguity of the past and glorify something that happened to you in a certain way or get waylaid by how hard something was for you in a certain way in the past. This is how Paul says it. Forgetting what lies behind, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of Christ. Don't rest on your laurels or get waylaid by difficult things. Is he today your king? Second strand of application is that the kingdom of God, Jesus being king, makes sense of everything. 
We'll see that more next week. He lays the groundwork for explaining the most difficult question that we as, Christ, as Christians can be faced by the non-believing world in that the problem of evil is real and difficult. And he lays the groundwork for that. So let's try a few more. Do you want confidence that you're in Christ, that you're a believer, that you belong to Him? Do you want Jesus to be King of your life? Are you excited about Him being King? Does that bring joy to your heart? Those things don't happen in the heart of those who are in rebellion to Him. Here's another difficult question. What job, career, or plan should you have in your life? The ones that help you and help others most get ready for the return of King Jesus. Who should I marry? That's a difficult one. Find a man or woman who will help you submit to King Jesus. How do I raise good kids? By not focusing on the expectations of the world or friends or family. The most important thing is that they love and adore King Jesus. How should I spend my time? Do things that help you love and obey King Jesus. Why should we pray? Here's another difficult question. Why should we pray? Why should we evangelize if God is all-knowing and sovereign over all things? Be like King Jesus. He prayed a lot. Don't you think he knew exactly what was going to happen with Judas? And yet he still extends the offer to him. Third point of application. We won't have time to explore all this. What should a local church look like in light of the kingdom of God and Jesus being king? It's not about us. It's not about North Star Baptist Church. It's not about the Southern Baptist Convention. It's not even about any individual person in this room. It's not even about all of us together as a group. It's about King Jesus. When a person comes in this room, regardless of what culture or background or religion they come from, the sense, the aroma, as Paul talks about, should be that Jesus is king. And all true believers should sense and feel that in this place, maybe I don't like their music, maybe I don't like the pastor, maybe he's a little bit awkward, but Jesus is king here. Jesus is the most important person in this room. And when we leave this room, we live our lives in a way to draw people to King Jesus. Regardless of what credit we get, where they join, we're a family. We're trying to help each other and help our neighbors worship King Jesus to prepare for His return. Because He's coming back. Is that real for you? That He is coming back. And the significance of that idea in your mind, whether or not that's just kind of a fairy tale for you or a cool idea to think about in religious moments and in your meditation, or if it's something that rules over your decision-making in your life because you know that He is returning. So in this time that we set aside after the sermons, my, my heart in that, this, this has covered one of the most important aspects, and it's not like there are any unimportant aspects of our faith Every Sunday, my hope for this time after the sermon is that you would not do business with God, as some say, but that you would respond to the truth as it's been proclaimed, as you've seen it in Scripture. If you need to be right where you are praying silently, or if you need to go find a brother or sister and ask forgiveness, if you need to 
Entrust your life to King Jesus. If you need to talk to someone to do that, I'll be up front. There are many other people you could find. If you need that moment just to respond in grateful worship, that's what this time is for. If the Spirit of moving, if the Spirit is moving, we best not silence Him and get out to our day, even though there's a lot of cool stuff waiting for us out there. So please respond to Him. He is your King. Let's live like it. Father, thank you for these men and women. Pray that as we seek to live our lives in a way that honors you and that glorifies you, that we wouldn't make it about us, we wouldn't make it about our church, but that we would all be trying to get ready for your return and enjoy living our lives with you as our king. And I pray that this time of response would be focused on you, that it would be Christ-centered. And pray that as we go out and we make the decisions that direct the rest of our lives, that you being our king would be the most important thing in our minds. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.